This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The nature of leadership. Distinguishing between true elites and the counterfeits. Modern Americans have a complicated relationship with the idea of leadership. We understand instinctively what good leadership is. But that understanding conflicts with our mistaken ideas about equality. At the same time, we enjoy pointing to the mistakes of those in leadership over us, whether that person be a shift supervisor in a convenience store or the President of the United States. So we know that we need leaders, yet we resent them at the same time. Part of the problem is that so many people in leadership positions are not true leaders. Mr. John Horvat discusses the effects of true leadership in his essay, When True Elites Take Charge, Problems Get Resolved. People love to attack every type of false elite. Whether it be power, Hollywood, Beltway, and coastal elites, they all inhabit different swamps and use their influence to gain control. The populists point to these elites as the cause of many problems afflicting the nation. Throw them out, they cry, pitchforks in hand. Of course, many complaints against these false elites are valid. They abuse their positions and power for their own interest. The decline of elites is part of the general decadence that has descended upon all society. However, the real problem is that the radical populists do not stop at false elites. They insist that all elites be swept away, including authentic and legitimate ones, in the name of the people. No elites they pontificate. Such a position is irrational. No human group, a family, community, church, or nation, can function properly and achieve its goals unless a class of people, the leadership, acts with reason, prudence, and dedicated self-sacrifice, providing moderation and direction to the whole. A people bereft of legitimate, devoted, and trusted leaders is a children's crusade. It is a delusion doomed for destruction on the hard and jagged rocks of reality. Thus, when the anti-elites finish throwing out the baby with the bathwater, they do not indicate who will replace these leaders, who, despite their faults, render some service to society. They rarely volunteer to assume the responsibilities of those who are displaced. This mentality prepares the way for leftists, demagogues, corrupt politicians, and bureaucrats to fill the void as seen in the current political scene. The existence of elites should be embraced, not scorned. If America is a major problem in the world today, someone is directing the nation. A hidden network of true elites exists at all levels of society that sustains the present system. Call them what you will. Leaders, representative characters, mentors, or movers. These true elites get things done and make decisions that prevent disaster. They naturally rise to the top of communities, universities, industry, and any field where excellence is found. Their role is not easy to fill. 
Being part of a true elite is not a matter of ordering people around and enjoying every luxury and privilege. It consists of the arduous task of unifying people to act with a singular purpose to bring out the best in society. A true elite is much more given to serving the common good than to being served. Even the most libertarian authors admit that elites are necessary for society to flourish. Economist Ludwig von Mises wrote in his book, Bureaucracy, quote, Mankind would never have reached the present state of civilization without heroism and self-sacrifice on the part of an elite. Every step forward on the way toward an improvement of moral conditions has been an achievement of men who were ready to sacrifice their own well-being, their health, and their lives for the sake of a cause they considered just and beneficial, unquote. The present culture promotes an antagonistic and egalitarian mindset that complicates the plight of true elites. Given this hostility, many dare not call themselves elites, although they do perform those functions. The hostility makes them deny that they are elites and try to appear like everyone else. If the direction of society is to be corrected, the main focus should be presenting a picture of what true elites might look like. This portrayal is sadly lacking. A captivating depiction of true elites is found in a text by Edmund Burke, 1729-1797, that deserves to be brought to light. He highlights their qualities, so contrary to the self-interest motivating false elites. His 1791, An Appeal from the New to the Old Whigs, speaks of the education, broad horizons, and self-discipline of those who take it on themselves to serve the common good. This depiction applies to leadership at all levels of society and in every field. It provides a list of expectations that pulls all of society upward. Thus, he writes of those who constantly try to uplift themselves and serve as a model. Such a person should strive, quote, to be bred in a place of estimation, to see nothing low and sordid from one's infancy, to be taught to respect oneself, to be habituated to the sensorial inspection of the public eye, unquote. Immense value must be given to the elite's ability to perceive the big picture and to be informed with the best available knowledge and wisdom. The noted author calls upon such leaders, quote, to stand upon such elevated ground as to be enabled to take a large view of the widespread and infinitely diversified combinations of men and affairs in a large society, to have leisure to read, to reflect, to converse, to be enabled to draw the court and attention of the wise and learned, wherever they are to be found, unquote. Society should be led by those who confront problems and realize that acts have direct consequences, so contrary to today's false elites. Thus, such figures are, quote, to be habituated in armies to command and to obey, to be taught to despise danger in the pursuit of honor and duty, 
to be formed to the greatest degree of vigilance, foresight, and circumspection in a state of things in which no fault is committed with impunity and the slightest mistakes draw on the most ruinous consequences, unquote. Such representative characters should cultivate good habits so that they might, quote, be led to a guarded and regulated conduct, unquote. They are, quote, to possess the virtues of diligence, order, constancy, and regularity, and to have cultivated a habitual regard to commutative justice, unquote. Burke called these elites a natural aristocracy that provides a social framework without which there is no nation. When God's grace and providence further strengthen this framework, it sets the stage for a society immersed in a truly Christian civilization. Not all elites lived up to these standards. However, Such a description served as a means of imagining the ideal society and its legitimate elites. Those who took on the arduous task of leading society had goals and standards they might strive toward. Everyone held them up to these high standards so that society might work harmoniously. Society today no longer has such descriptions. There are no goals. A vulgar and egalitarian mindset sees anything superior as an oppressive force. Exaggerated individualism discourages people from looking beyond themselves. The result is a Hobbesian sand heap of individuals engaged in a war of every man against every man. Society is governed by opportunists and those thinking only of their self-interest. Drawing a moral profile of true elites, as Edmund Burke did, would do much to provide solace to a nation now exhausted by political theater. It would be refreshing to imagine those who agree to be models and hold themselves up to moral and cultural standards worthy of imitation. Seeing courtesy, honor, and civility once more revered in society would be a relief. This can only be done by reimagining what true elites should be. Over its two centuries plus existence, 45 men have served the United States as president. None of these men have been perfect leaders. Some of them have been quite impressive. Others have been disastrous. Mr. Horvat writes about the current president in his essay, Imagining a Heretical President. Bishop Thomas Paprocki recently pointed to a crisis in the church with his article, Imagining a Heretical Cardinal. The learned canon lawyer masterfully laid out his case by quoting the positions of a hypothetical cardinal taken from an article written by San Diego Cardinal Robert McElroy without mentioning his name. It does not take much imagination to apply the same principles the bishop identifies to other figures, starting with imagining a heretical U.S. president. Of course, this application should be used judiciously, lest it become a witch hunt accusing everyone of heresy. But the Bishop of Springfield, Illinois, carefully showed how, on specific questions, 
The Cardinal's heterodox stands about sexual matters and the Holy Eucharist put him outside the communion of the Church, among the separated brethren, i.e., it made him a heretic. Moreover, he cited canon law showing how subscribing to these positions separates a person from the faith, with no need for an official declaration of excommunication. It is automatic. The offender removes himself from the church automatically by holding the condemned positions, late sententiae, to use the technical terminology. He becomes a heretic and is excommunicated by the simple fact that he, quote, rejects essential truths of the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. See Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Canonically, neither the cardinal nor his numerous defenders have rebutted the bishop's charge. They have sought to deflect the attack by questioning church teaching on sexual matters or attempting to revive the condemned principle of the fundamental option that the love of God trumps all, even long-defined dogmas and morals, and the canon law by which the church is governed. Canonically, however, the cardinal remains, as charged, a heretic. Bishop Paprocki's refreshing statement brings definition and clarity not only to the McElroy case, but to the wider debate. The willingness to call a spade a spade and a heretic a heretic has long been lacking. His bold invitation to get this discussion out in the open changes the dynamic of the present dispute. Catholics can now talk in precise terms about such important matters, thanks to a learned bishop who was unafraid of opening up the debate by using the forbidden H-word. And we might add, as in the case of the wayward cardinal, the proper term also needs to be applied to influential public figures who take advantage of their Catholic identity to destroy the moral order, confuse the faithful, and offend God. Because of the moral harm done to millions and the common good of the nation, it has become urgent to imagine a heretical president. The president's case would differ somewhat from the cardinal's, since it does not deal with the Eucharist. The bishop's clear canonical outline about how to make this determination, however, is the same. The bishop defines heresy as, quote, the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some faith which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. See Canon 751 of the Code of Canon Law. With words and actions, the president denies the defined truth about abortion. The church affirms that every procured abortion is intrinsically evil. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that this church teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable since the first century. Canon law further sanctions abortion and those who facilitate it. Joe Biden has, both before being elected president and insistently since taking office, held positions regarding abortion, homosexuality, 
and other major issues that are contrary to church teaching. He has made it his mission to vastly expand access to abortion and the distribution of abortion pills with the passion of a pagan Caesar persecuting Christians. And he has hidden behind his Catholic identity and misrepresented church teaching when challenged. The president has had the advantage of being warned of his errors by faithful American bishops. He can claim no ignorance. As Bishop Paprocki skillfully demonstrated, however, such warnings have gone unheeded. The truth needs to be said. Anyone who denies church teaching on the intrinsic evil of procured abortion separates himself automatically from the communion of the church. Like the cardinal, canonically imagining a heretical president must be on the table. Such a distinction would seem irrelevant in a political order that recognizes no official church. Heretical president seems to have no place in a secular society, and whether he is a heretic would seem to make no practical difference. What public offices and the people who occupy them promote, however, is important in a postmodern world without meaning. Indeed, the church still wields immense influence on the public debate despite the great crisis inside of her. The president and his wife certainly know the political value of appearing Catholic in public. Mrs. Biden, for example, recently appeared at a function in Africa discussing contraception while wearing a Catholic rosary around her neck. Mr. Biden loses no opportunity to present himself as Catholic. What the church needs now more than ever is clarity. As Bishop Paprocki said, the time for private conversations is over. He provides an excellent template for bringing matters of great importance out in the open. Imagining a heretical president clears the air around the debate. It dispels the theatrics surrounding so-called Catholic figures that betray church teaching. Frustrating every attempt to muddy the waters, the Paprocki template makes it clear that, unless they repent, the president and others like him must be treated as heretics separated from the church. They can no longer use their Catholic identity as cover to advance their progressive agendas. Such agendas need to be seen for what they are, evil opinions that lead to the destruction of innocent human life and the perdition of many. For the sake of the faithful and the unborn, the heretics must be publicly denounced. China's Xi Jinping is a very different man than President Biden. Among those differences is that Xi makes no claim to be Catholic or any other religion, unless you consider communism to be a religion. However, Xi still has responsibilities as a leader. One of those responsibilities is to make life better for the people that he leads. In this, he fails miserably. Indeed, there is much evidence that the people of China are miserable. Mr. Edwin Benson assesses that evidence in his essay, 
Can China's Xi Jinping keep his authority over a nation of pessimists? Quote, Xi must be in a panic. His primary form of diplomacy is to intimidate others. If you're going to have the world's largest economy, if you're going to be the most populous society, yeah, you can intimidate others. But if your country is rapidly shrinking, and that's what's going to happen to China, then no one's going to be particularly scared. Unquote. These are the words of China scholar, lawyer, and journalist Gordon Chang. Mr. Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China, 2001, and The Great U.S.-China Tech War, 2020. Every aspiring author knows that making hyperbolic statements is an effective way to sell books. Still, a surprising variety of publications have swung around to Mr. Chang's point of view, including at least one unlikely coupling, Fox News and CNN. Recently, the New York Times and the Washington Post have done lengthy articles describing China's imminent peril. They all agree that the cause of China's coming economic disaster can be summed up in one word, population. Many modern Americans may be surprised at China's precarious state. After all, for the last four decades, the popular analysis has been that China is a growing economic powerhouse with ever-lengthening tentacles in nations worldwide, including the United States. Within the last few weeks, American news watchers saw news of a massive Chinese spy balloon taking its leisurely course over U.S. missile installations in the Great Plains. Some coverage mentioned that the Chinese had purchased extensive farmland holdings near those installations. Nonetheless, the population figures are compelling. Fox reports, quote, A United Nations forecast shows China's population decreasing 100 million by 2050 and 600 million by 2100, unquote. They are well on their way. In 2022, China's population fell by 850,000 people. The same year, Chinese women gave birth to about half the number of babies that they did in 2016, 9.6 million versus 17.9 million. If the 2022 tally is accurate, and figures coming out of China are always doubtful, the birth rate was half the replacement rate. What can explain this demographic disaster? First, a disastrous one-child policy dominated the nation from the 80s until roughly 2015. The myth that China's population was too large to be fed goes back at least to 1900. Therefore, China's communist leaders deliberately tried to shrink the population by limiting each set of parents to one child. However, this policy had one massive unintended consequence. Since Chinese parents depend on their sons to provide for them as they age, 
most want their one child to be a boy. Girls were selectively aborted, adopted by couples in other countries, or abandoned to starvation. Second, many conditions indicate that much of China's current population is deeply pessimistic about the future. They suffer from the emptiness of materialism that teaches that there is nothing beyond material things. Their spiritual appetites are thus neglected. Among China's young adults, this has resulted in three phrases that make their way around social media. Laying flat, let it rot, and the last generation. All three indicate that young Chinese see little, if anything, to work for, because the future, in their estimations, is incredibly bleak. Insider quoted a young man in Shanghai, Dylan Wang. Quote, There are many things that make me think my generation is likely to be China's last, or its last good one. None of my friends want to have children. And I, for one, don't want to bring new life into a world like this, and for them to grow up to be lonely, aimless, and another useless statistic in the country's birth rate. Unquote. Third, marriage in China is, in the words of the Washington Post, in freefall. China's first marriages rate has fallen by half since 2013. There are at least three reasons for this precipitous drop. First, marriage has always been an expression of optimism, tending to increase in prosperous times and decrease when economic prospects are dim. Second, as noted above, the one-child policy has sharply diminished the number of marriageable women in China. CNN relates a third reason, which will sound familiar to Western feminists. Quote, These issues are exacerbated by entrenched gender roles that often place the bulk of housework and child care on women, who, more educated and financially independent than ever, are increasingly unwilling to bear this unequal burden. Women have also reported facing discrimination at work, based on their marital or parental status, with employers often reluctant to pay maternity leave. Unquote. Those who study history know that increased national power is accompanied by population growth. So how can it be that China is growing stronger while its population is in freefall? There are only two possible explanations. First, the descriptions of China's growing strength are overblown, lies designed to scare citizens and policymakers in nations that China sees as its enemies. The second explanation is that China's growing power is only temporary, a house of cards that will soon fall. Xi Jinping radiates optimism about China's growing influence. Still, Many fear that his knowledge of just how fragile China's future is may drive him to irresponsible acts. This is especially critical in the economic realm, the basis of much of China's increasing power since the 70s. An aging population creates financial strains that are difficult for any bureaucracy, even a totalitarian one, to handle.
Xi has, in the words of CNN, quote, pledged to improve the population development strategy and ease economic pressure on families, unquote. However, his difficulties will be immense. He faces massive headwinds, represented by the social, economic, and demographic factors described above. As an example, consider an anecdote from the Washington Post. It describes how despair among young adults threatens China's future. Quote, The faceless, hazmat-clad health police try to bully a young man out of his apartment and off to a quarantine camp. He refuses to leave. Don't you understand, they warned? If you don't comply, bad things can happen to your family for three generations? Sorry, he replies mildly. We are the last generation. Unquote. In other words, the young man was telling them to save their threats for someone who cares. This concludes The Nature of Leadership, Distinguishing Between True Elites and the Counterfeits. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcasts on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be able to find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.